redheads make up less than 2% of the world's population. Now, there have been rumors that, that the redhead gene will be extinct within 100 years. Do not believe the lies. In God's sovereign kindness, he has blessed this congregation with an, an abnormal uh, large percentage of redheads. Uh, growing up as a redhead uh, prepares you to have thick skin. You kind of come into the world possessing nicknames that you did not earn. Opie, Howdy Doody, Carrot Top, or Redheaded Stepchild. I remember at a football practice one time, our coach tried to pump up our team, and he says, let's go out there and beat them like a redheaded stepchild. Sorry, Dave. I went to a conference, a Christian conference, this past Thursday, and one of the workshop titles was, Is Evangelism the Redheaded Stepchild of Discipleship? At a Christian conference! A few years ago, I was speaking at a conference, and a woman came up to me after one of the first sessions and said, I really thank you for, for your talk, and I heard you last year when you were down in um, another part of the state. I said, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am, I was, I was never there. She goes, yes, you were. I said, sorry, ma'am, I was never there. You are a liar. Yes, you were there. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not a liar. Apparently, redheads just look alike. I've heard probably more often in my life when I meet people, I, I have a cousin or a friend that looks just like you. There's just a few of us that kind of pop up in different parts of the state. At my previous church, my former, our former uh, uh, senior pastor looked just like me. He was a little bit taller, bigger guy, red, red beard. Uh, and oftentimes we could tell if people were not faithful to the church when they would come up to me and ask me if I was the senior pastor because they heard of our, our appearance. Several times we even confuse our children when we would feel something pulling out our legs and we looked down and it was one of our other children that did not belong to us. Redheads have a very unique ability for imitation. We almost look alike, yet there are subtle and distinct differences. Like redheads, the Antichrist has a unique ability for imitation. I'm not sure if I'm helping the redhead cause this morning comparing us to the Antichrist, but hopefully it will help you remind you uh, of Satan's desires to win your allegiance to the Antichrist. Uh, the Antichrist is prevalent and uh, active. That spirit is alive in our day. Uh, many scholars think that Revelation 12 through 14 is the heart of the book as it shows this, the ultimate struggle of this world between good and the battle of evil, between God and Satan. Last week, we looked at Revelation 12, and it introduces the dragon, how he wars against the, the saints. Satan knows that since the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and the salvation he now offers freely in repentance and faith, that his time is short. So in furious rage and anger, he makes war against the saints. Look in your Bibles in chapter 12, verse 17. It says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So the dragon, the Satan, stands on the sand of the sea and calling forth his dominions to deceive the world by imitating and usurping God's authority. So as Satan makes war against his saints, we are called to respond in faith. So I think in this text, I think there's three callings that I'm going to call you to through this text. As we face the Antichrist, 
one day or little antichrists that are in the world. The first call is a call for preparation, a call for preparation. As we approach Revelation 13, uh, we really have to ask ourselves, who is the beast? And how can we be prepared for this beast? So go back with me to the text, Revelation chapter 13, look at verse 1. It says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Now in this day, the sea would really be a picture of evil. Uh, things were, were chaotic and couldn't control it. So in apocalyptic language, the sea is often referred to as evil. It says, Out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadem on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like the leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name, his dwelling, and that is those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given to over every tribe and people and language and nation. I believe that it's most likely this beast here is referring to the Antichrist. We see that reference in 1 John 2, verse 18, also the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. John refers to this figure as a beast using the language of Daniel 7, which we read earlier. Now, Daniel speaks of four beasts, referring to four great kingdoms that stand against the Lord. John takes that imagery of four beasts, and he uses that word beast, in, I think, in, uh, by design, and then whittles it down to one beast as a culmination and representation of all the kingdoms and nations that stand against the Lord. So the beast in Revelation 13 is a literal, I believe, individual representing an earthly kingdom at the end of history. But as we, as we, as we go through this text, we'll see that his role can be seen, or a type of his role can be seen throughout history. So in 1 John 2, 18 and 19, that's going to be a key text for us this morning. 1 John 2, 18 and 19, it says this, Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. As there have been many forerunners or types foreshadowing the coming of the Messiah, there's also types and forerunners foreshadowing the coming of the Antichrist. Uh, the Antichrist is an individual, but he also represents a nation, the, the ruler of that nation. Uh, the reference to Daniel implies that the beast will be a leader of a kingdom or nation. I didn't read it in the text, but if you go back to Daniel and read the second half of chapter 7, it talks about the interpretation of that dream. And the ten, the ten horns that it mentions in Daniel 7 is referring to kingdoms. Most would, would, would refer to those the great kingdoms of um, the ancient world. So it makes sense not only in the context of Daniel and Revelation, but also in, in contrast to the Lord, who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The Antichrist sets himself in the place of God, deceiving the nations to worship him as the supreme authority. This imitation, I think, can be seen in verse 4 when his followers say, 
Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? This would have been a common refrain in the Old Testament. The, the original audience would have immediately heard it. So Psalm 71:19, You have done great things, O God. Who is like you? Psalm 77:13, Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Psalm 113.5 Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on earth, who looks down on the heavens and the earth? God is the one who is supreme. God is the one who, who is alone supreme. This beast is an imposter. He is claiming supreme authority and allegiance. For John, the beast is probably, most likely, wrong. As Caesar demanded allegiance and to be worshipped by all the people of the earth. But Caesar is only a preview of another beast that will demand allegiance and authority for all those who dwell on the earth. Imitation also, I think, can be seen in verse 3. The one that says, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, and its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Notice the imitation here to the Lord Jesus Christ, the true king, the, the only sovereign. The Lord Jesus had a mortal wound. He was crucified, dead, and buried. And God did what? Raised him from the dead. Here, the beast seemed to have a mortal wound. Some think it refers to an individual leader who, who should have been maybe assassinated, but, but recovered from that assassination attempt. Others believe it's the apparent collapse of the, the Roman Empire. When, when Nero died, it looked as if Rome was going to collapse, only to find other leaders rise and fill that void. Either way, it's not a true mortal wound. It only seemed like one. It's a false imitation of a false king. That's what the Antichrist is. So we must be prepared for the cheap imitation that will arise in every generation demanding authority that only God possesses. Thomas Schreiner makes the point that every generation kind of has the right impulse that sees someone in their generation as the Antichrist. So Stalin of Russia, Hitler of Germany, Mao Zedong of China, King Jong-il of North Korea, Nero of Rome, Hussein of Iraq. I mean, there are all these, these types of people who demand allegiance and authority. It's really only a preview, a foreshadowing of the ultimate Antichrist and his evil reign. So we must be prepared then when the final Antichrist comes, but also be prepared today when those types arise. The beast will utter blasphemies against the Lord and persecute believers who trust in Christ. Friends, we can see this all over the globe right now. Believers who are being, facing persecution for standing against the government authorities who say you can't worship the one true God. There will be an accepted war against the saints. And the saints will be put to death. And not only will they be put to death, but they will be cheered when that happens, as we see in the chapter 11. So John, writing to the seven churches of his day, he warns them to stand against Rome and the emperor worship. Go back and read Revelation 2 and 3 this afternoon and just think about how many times John warns them not to compromise their faith, not to bow down to, to emperor worship in, of Caesar. So I would, I would tell you that we today need to be encouraged to stand against bowing down to the secular authorities of our, of our day. 
Friends, do not compromise your faith in the workplace. Do not compromise your beliefs for promotions or prestige. Do not compromise your allegiance to Jesus in any way. The Bible says do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. Something strange were happening to you. But beloved, blessed are us who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when, when all kinds of people utter false things against you on account of the Lord Jesus Christ. For great is your reward in heaven. God's people have always been persecuted. And we get to join in that number. We want to be prepared for the rise of the Antichrist and his forerunners. The second call is a call for perseverance. A call for perseverance. We know it's coming, but when it actually comes and we're prepared for it, well, now we must persevere through it. There's a calling to endure and persevere the evil of our day. John's goal in writing Revelation was not only for us 2,000 years later, but for the people of his day that they would not give up, that they would persevere through evil and they would conquer. They would hold fast to Christ until the end. We can conquer because we know that God is, is still and will always be in control. Look at verse 8 of chapter, second half of verse 7, sorry, of chapter 13. It says, The authority was given it over to every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to take captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. See what ended there? Here's a call to the endurance and the faith of the saints. We are called to have faith and endurance when evil comes. Why and how? Because we know that God ultimately is in control. God is wise. God is strong. God is sovereign. Nothing happens outside of His control. The dragon and the two beasts of Revelation 12 and 13 do not operate outside of the hand of God. Now, there are difficult things that we don't have time to dive in today regarding how God could allow evil in our world. That's a different sermon for a different day. But in Revelation 13, what we see six times, God gives authority to the beast. It's a passive, meaning it's 24 times in the book, every time God gives it uh, to someone. So in verse 5, it says, The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And in verse 5, again, it was, it was allowed, or literally it was given, to exercise authority for 42 months. In verse 7, it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. The authority was given over every, was given, again, again in verse 7. In verse 14, by the signs which it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, verse 14. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. So, all I want you to see here is that the, the under God's sovereign control, evil was allowed to reign for a time. Now, I think that this 42 months really begins at the resurrection of Christ and goes into the end of history. I kind of made that point last week. To conquer them, here in the text, means that the beast was allowed to take their lives. We see that martyrdom is, is a common theme in Revelation. But remember, martyrdom in Revelation is not defeat. Martyrdom is victory. 
Because you have fasted Christ until the end. Here it says, everyone on earth will worship the power and the might and the strength of the beast. Except, except those whose names have been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. John reminds us here that we are followers of the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain. The world hated our Master and it will hate us. The world killed our Lord and its desire will be to kill us. And if the world takes our lives, we are safe. Because our names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So before God spoke the world into existence, He knew that His Son was going to come and die and redeem people for His own possession. To be dead and buried, to be, to be raised from the dead, to ascend into heaven, to send His Holy Spirit to give us victory. God chose to send His Son for us, for all those who will repent and believe in Him. When you hear that, you hear what Christ did for us, it's a, it's a, it's a, it should encourage our hearts to persevere, to press on, to move forward. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear. If you are called to be jailed for your faith, be jailed for your faith. If you are called to, to die for your faith, die for your faith. If you're called to lose your savings, lose your savings. This is a call to persevere, to trust in Christ. Our hope is not in this life. Our hope is that our names are written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain for us. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, it may seem odd that a Christian is called to have joy in trials. To have joy even in the face of death. But our hope goes beyond this world. We don't cling to our lives here, but we know that in losing our lives for Christ's sake, we truly find it. We believe that we deserve to be slain for our sins. We know our condemnation. We know what we have done to wrong a holy and just God. And we know that God will be fully right and good to punish us for our sin. And yet even though we deserve death, God gives us grace in His Son. Jesus lived the life that we were called to live. And when He died, He did not die for His own sins, but He died for our sins. He died for all who repent and believe in Him. Our hope is not only in His death for us, but in His resurrection. God raised Jesus to life, proving that God was satisfied in the sacrifice of, of Jesus. But it, not only was God satisfied, it's also a promise that Jesus was the, the first fruits. He was the first resurrection, and we shall follow him. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, can I just consider, have you considered Jesus? Consider what he has done and the hope that he offers. Consider how Christians can face hope, even in the face of death. Beloved, we endure faith in the Lamb who was slain to take our sins. In preparing for the sermon, I heard a sermon by Mark Dever, and he shares a story of a Jamaican slave named David. Uh, this was probably 1800s Jamaica, where the slave owners were kind of worried about any slaves gathering together and causing a revolt. So they discovered David having a prayer meeting, and they, they captured him, took him, and they killed him. 
to cut off his head and put it on a pole as an example to all the slaves that you will not gather in prayer um, here. It took the, the master, um, or the, the pastor, the pastor of the people, uh, Moses Hall. They took him to the pole and they accused him. The slave master asked him, and, and now, Moses Hall, do you know who this is? He says, it is David. Do you know why he's tied up here? For praying, sir. The slave master warned Moses Hall, and the rest of the slaves gathered. No more prayer meetings. If we catch you praying, we will serve you the same way we served David. What did Moses Hall do in the face of that antichrist spirit? And what would you have done? Moses Hall did what all Christians should do. He knelt. He prayed. Him and his fellow slaves knelt before those slave masters in the face of death and prayed that their souls would be saved, that they move from death to life. Beloved, we have been conquered by the blood of the Lamb who was slain. And we will conquer by the word of our testimony when we as all Christians have demonstrated, or as Christians have been demonstrating throughout the centuries, to love not our lives even to the point of death. God is in control. He has promised to give you life and he will give it. Do not live, do not love your lives more than the promised hope of the resurrection. Persevere. Lastly, the call for prudence, a call for prudence. So really the last call is a call to, for wisdom. We must walk in wisdom in our world. Paul says, look carefully, then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. We are in the last days when Satan has been given authority to make war on the saints. So if you look at Romans 13, where it shows that God is in control of all authority and we are called to submit to those governing bodies, Revelation 13 is the opposite side of government. When it shows the wickedness and the, the evil uh, of, of a state when it wields authority against the Lord. So how are we as Christians called to live under evil rule? Well, let's look at this end of this chapter. Look at verse 11. It says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. He performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven in front of people. If you look back at chapter, chapter 12, that same language is used. There's this more imitation here. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. So the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. But the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. The second beast here is most likely another individual who promotes false religion. 
He's referred to explicitly as the false prophet in Revelation 16, 13, 19, 20, and 2010. So the dragon and these two beasts, one out of the sea and one out of the, off the land, makes an unholy trinity that stand in contrast to our holy triune God. They're spoken together of in, in Revelation 16, 13. This second beast is the false prophet that precedes the, the false Christ. As John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ, so here the prophet is the forerunner to the Antichrist. His role is to make people worship the first beast. You see this form of imitation. It's trying to put its, the, uh, the devil and his dominion with these two beasts are trying to place themselves in God's role. Now we have been warned against false prophets by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He said, Beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. This is the picture of the beast here. He comes appearing like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. It's cunning, it's subtle, and its aim is to deceive. Satan has been using false prophets from the time of Christ to lead people astray. I mean, just do a quick reading of your New Testament. Just see how many times false teaching and false prophets are, are mentioned. It will be no different in the end. This false prophet will help usher a worldwide worship of the beast. This prophet deceives the nations, bringing severe persecution on the saints, from economic consequences even to the death of the saints. And yet the end says, we, 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 this is a call to wisdom. But the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, what is the number of man? His number is 666. Now, there has been so many interpretations of what this number means. Some have even suggested that this 666 is referring to Ronald Wilson Reagan. Because every name has six letters. Six, six, six. I really, I think what John is doing here, he's just trying to show that this number is not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of, of man. Seven is the perfect number. Three sevens represents perfection, completeness, righteousness. Where the 666 will represent the kingdom of man that is set against God and worships the Antichrist and has its allegiance to the kingdom of this world rather than the kingdom of Christ. If you want to go back, read the Gospel of John. As you read the Gospel of John, he says there's really only two camps in this world. There's the children of God and the children of the devil. I think that's what he's trying to draw out here. Either you are, are one whose name has been written before the foundation of the world, as, as whose name is in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, or you are not. John is appealing to his readers to understand the nature of the kingdom of this world and to live in this world, but not be of this world. For John writes in his first letter, For all the world, all that is in the world, the desires, the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we need to live in light of eternity. This world, the kingdom of man, will pass away, but only those who do the will of the Lord will abide forever. So how do we live with wisdom? Let me just end with these concluding points. Number one, hold fast to Christ. Meditate and rejoice in the gospel of Christ. Do not love your life more than the Savior. God chose you before the foundation of the world to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. This means that our primary joy is not in our circumstances, not in our comfort, not in our acceptance from the world, 
But our joy is in Christ and the cross and his resurrection. Our highest joy is that we belong to Christ. Second, we should be coveted together in a local body of believers. That we gather regularly to prepare ourselves for the day that is drawing near. John wants to prepare the church so that they will not be deceived. Do not think that any one of us on our own cannot be deceived. God knows that, that we are susceptible, that we are foolish people and forgetful and often go astray. So God puts us in a community that says, be in a body so that you'll be protected and cared for. God has given you this church for your protection. He has given you brothers and sisters in this church to pray for you and to model godliness to you. He has given you leaders to teach you sound doctrine so that you will not be blown back by every wind of doctrine, that you'll be able to see the invitation. Do not forsake the church. We are an outpost of the heavenly kingdom. Our community must proclaim the true King of kings and the Lord of lords, both in word and in deed. Jesus is the only Savior, and our community must reflect that reality. Third, beloved, we need to pray for the persecuted church. The church has always faced compromise and pressure from an evil state. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Iran and Iraq. Pray for them in Russia and Turkmenistan, in North Korea and China. The Antichrist is coming, but there are many Antichrists in the world that use the state to oppress and persecute their people. And we can even look at our own country. Now, we are a country that has far more blessings and freedoms than any other nation, but if we want to pursue Christ, we're going to face persecution. And sometimes it's going to hurt us where what we love the most in our pocketbook. That's where I think God is trying to get our attention as an American church, not to love money more than him. We need to be diligent to pray. Fourth, do not shrink back from speaking the truth at your jobs and in your families. We want to speak with wisdom and grace. We want to be full of compassion and kindness and, and love. But we must speak. Do not love your jobs, your future promotion, worldly prestige, more than the blood of Christ. Let your trust in Christ be primary. Hold fast to your testimony. It is a constant danger in a secular age. But friends, this world and all its desires in this world will pass away. Only those who do the will of the Father will remain. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? Mark 8.36 Let us pray for wisdom so that we may always do the will of the Father. Amen. Lastly, as we conclude, be imitators of Christ. There will be many false imitations, cheap replicas and wicked imposters in the last days. We will be able to see false kings when we truly know the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We can detect false lords when we know the true Lord. So, beloved, be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And, oh, beloved, hold fast to the Lamb who was slain on your behalf. Father, we pray that we 
as your people, would not compromise. That we would be prepared for the coming of false prophets and the Antichrist and the Antichrist spirit of our day. That we would persevere when it comes. And, oh God, that we would live with wisdom in this world. That we would glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain on our behalf. That people would see our lives and see a, a dim reflection of that wondrous mystery, the hope of glory, Christ in us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.